0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA.
1: Now it's time for ETF Prime
2: All right. Joining me this week will be Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, who back in August, they rolled out a suite of single stock ETFs, which I feel like single security ETFs overall are probably one of the top two or three ETF stories this year, if they're not at the top of the list. And if you joined me last week, you know that I went in depth on single bond ETFs. So I thought this week, we have to cover the equity side of the equation. And I would say nobody better to do that than Will Rind and Granite Shares, because they actually helped pioneer these products over in Europe a few years ago. They've been doing this for a while. And so Will and I are going to dive into all of the details on these ETFs, including why the SEC let these come to market, how they're structured, uh, the pros, the cons, who should be using these, how they should be using these. We're going to cover it all. So Will will join me a bit later in the show. Now, also joining me this week will be Kelsey Mowray, president of Motley Fool Asset Management, who I'm guessing some people hear Motley Fool and they immediately think of fool.com and that entire online brand they've established around content. But you may not be aware, there's actually an asset management arm here as well. And that asset management arm offers a lineup of six ETFs with over a billion dollars in assets, including two mutual funds they converted back in December. So Kelsey is going to give us a full tour of that ETF lineup and also just discuss the uh, history here with their asset management business. Really looking forward to that. Now to start this week, you may have seen the big news out of Vetify last week. I feel like they have big news every week now. I honestly can't keep up anymore, but they announced the acquisition of Advisor Perspectives, which if you're a financial advisor, you're probably already pretty familiar with that platform. They've been a go-to for advisors for a long time now, And I feel like they've done just an excellent job of really engaging advisors on the content side. But I have on the line with me both Tom Hendrickson, who is chief product and innovation officer at Vetify, and Bob Hoopscher, founder and CEO of Advisor Perspectives. You're going to get to hear the uh, inside scoop on this deal right now. Now, we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics
1: and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time.
2: Tom, Bob, congratulations on the uh, deal and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much, Nate. Great to be here.
2: All right. So, uh, tell us about this, and Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, What was the catalyst here? Uh, How does Advisor Perspectives fit in with what Vetify is building longer term? Uh, Give us the details.
1: Yeah, happy to, Nate. Uh, So, we're we're incredibly excited. We announced last Thursday the acquisition of Advisor Perspectives, um, and and we'll certainly dive into all the rationale and, and, and reasons behind that. But maybe just to take a quick step back, so. Vetify uh, as a brand is, is only a short six months old or so, uh, but the capability set that underpins us as a company really actually has decades of lineage uh, when you think about going back to Alarion and S Network Global Indexes and ETF Trends and ETF Database and, and now Advisor Perspectives. So, what we have done with Vetify is, is really assemble a, a very unique and what we believe to quite valuable um, set of capabilities, and we've been long admirers of uh, the business that Bob and and his team have built going back to 2007, and and Bob can certainly tell you more about the origin story, but the way in which they have cultivated uh, a a network of advisors who they've built trust through a, a really unique editorial process. And they've talked uh, to that community in in a number of ways that, you know, frankly, we we haven't necessarily leaned in on. Uh, A lot of our lineage is quite ETF-centric in nature and, you know, delivering investment strategy and and portfolio construction opportunity via the ETF wrapper. Bob has taken a broader view um, and and talked about a number of different delivery mechanisms. And moreover... Um, talked a lot about other things that are important in in the general life of an advisor and thinking about building their business and then a lot of the things that you know sort of encompass what a, what people refer to as practice management how advisors run their business so that was extremely attractive it was extremely complimentary and and you know probably the biggest part is that the team that bob um, assembled and and, and nurtured and, and has grown and has brought together it fit really really well um... With our culture, and and I think that we're we're really excited about the the capability set that the combined entity has, and, and we're we're thrilled that we're able to work day in day out with a company who we were we were reading from afar and 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 looked at with admiration, but now we're able to work uh, side by each every day.
2: Tom, you mentioned the uh, Vetify brand only being about six months old, or so. If we were to take a step back. you you know obviously you've been appearing on this podcast for what well over a year and a half now going on two years which uh, time flies when you're having fun that's hard to believe but we always have new listeners joining and so i'd love to have you just talk a bit more about the vetify platform as a whole, because I do think many listeners recall you operating under the ETF Trends and ETF Database brand when you first started appearing on here. Now, Vetify encompasses a number of different brands and, and businesses. You touched on a few of those. Can, can you just maybe describe these different business segments and maybe the overall vision here or the longer-term roadmap?
1: Yeah, happy to date. So every, everything that we do at Vetify and, and all of our, um, you know, the brands that that sort of built up to become Vetify, it really starts with the end user. And so we think about that and describe that as our, as our B2C responsibility. So there's a whole host of ways in which we, will, we take that very seriously and want to deliver value to that audience. And that's something you and I talk quite a bit about, Nate, is looking at some of the data from our digital platform and thinking about how do we interpret that and, and ultimately develop insight around what that is Uh, suggesting is most important to this user. So everything that we do is really underpinned by delivering value to those users. And so whether it's uh, users coming or advisors coming to advisorperspectives.com or, you know, domainetftrends.com or etfdb.com or or vetify.com, we want to make sure that we are putting them and the value that we're delivering to their day-to-day investing lives at, at the front and center and we have a whole host of ways of doing that, you know, through tools and content and research and uh, webcasts and livecasts and, and virtual summits and, and forums and, and ways in which we can um, make sure that we're educating and providing value to them through, uh, you know, an insight layer on top of data so that they're making, making great client decisions or client uh, decisions within their own portfolio. And everything that we do really does stem from that. So that's the... That's the B2C part, and and if we understand that audience really well, it gives us two opportunities. One is to do better in the types of content that we're creating, and be more targeted in the ways in which we're segmenting and delivering value to different cohorts within our broader audience. So really using that to power our flywheel, more users engaging on the platform more, enables us to deliver more types of, of content that are higher value. And then as we think about partnering with um, you know, asset managers or others within the financial services ecosystem, we can leverage that platform, and, and that's our B2B component of, our, of the business, so, so where we're doing business with folks within that community, and leveraging a lot of the ways that we are um, using that data to create content and tools and deliver value to other you know, more commercially oriented opportunities like index development, and commercialization, Uh, ways in which we can leverage the platform to disseminate messages as a digital distribution partner, and ways that we can harness some of that intelligence as it relates to helping others in the community make more efficient decisions in their business um, through the insights and our data and analytics platform. So... That's, that's a little bit about, you know, the vision and, and how this has been constructed. And, and again, the advisor perspective, uh, business, and, and what Bob has built just, just adds a lot of fuel to that fire, and, and it's uh, incredibly exciting.
2: Well, that's a perfect segue because, Bob, I do want to come to you now. And again, congratulations. Really excited to see how this all comes together moving forward. And we can certainly talk more about that from your perspective. But I'd love to have you start by giving us a little history on advisor perspectives. I know this was founded back in 2007. Uh, What's the backstory on why you started this? And perhaps take us through the past, uh, what, 15 years or so as you've uh, grown this?
3: Well, Nate, thank you very much. And first of all, thank you for having me as a guest. and also thank you for what you do to contribute to the advisory profession through this podcast. So my background is as a serial entrepreneur in the financial services industry. I prior to starting this business, I had created basically three other businesses, well, two of them were businesses that I created. then one was a, a turnaround business that I uh helped uh stabilize and uh that was uh from roughly 1982 when I graduated from business school until about 2007 and it was during that uh that third business that I worked on that turnaround business that I came up with the idea for advisor perspectives uh, that business was creating some uh a uh, database that had some interesting insights on high net worth investors and I thought I could take that information put it on a website sell advertising and, and I started out down that path and that quickly evolved into a newsletter and I saw there was an opportunity to deliver content that was more sophisticated than what at the time the print publications were delivering and but not at the level of an academic journal. There no, there's no calculus, no no Greek symbols. Uh, and and that was really what got me started and and our, our focus has really never changed since then. Over that entire 15 year period, we established a mission statement. Our mission is to help advisors enable their clients to reach their financial goals. That's something that our team uh, fully embraces. I've reinforced it, not just with our team, but across our readership. So our readers who are virtually all financial advisors understand that that is what we are trying to accomplish everything we do serves to fulfill that goal uh we we are now in terms of the electronic newsletters we deliver we are the most widely read newsletter across the advisory profession we also introduced an online community called AP viewpoint it has 20000 advisors who are members who are all authenticated participating under their own names engaging in conversations something that we think really helps the advisory profession in terms of discussing a lot of the content that we produce. So that's really where we are now, and um, uh, we are um, uh, proud to be part of the Vetify team.
2: Bob, one thing I'm curious about, you, you mentioned your focus not changing over the years, and I think that comes across crystal clear to anybody who's visited the website, but I'm curious, as an advisor myself, how have you determined the content you offer and how you can best add value to advisors, because as you know, the industry moves quickly, and there are many different stripes of advisors uh, out there. So, how have you approached serving up the best content to those advisors, and really just trying to stay on top of the space?
3: Well, the first test that we get in, that we apply when we look at a piece of content, whether it's something we want to write ourselves or use a freelance writer for or use a guest contribution is does it fulfill our mission does it help advisors enable their clients to reach their financial goals but it goes beyond that uh... we look only for content that has a long-term strategic focus so we're not in the business of trying to write about news or the events of the day or whatever the latest scandal is if there's a story that that other publications are going to rush to be the first ones to to uh... to to print or to publish online we're not going to enter that race we're never going to win it so we're focused on those longer-term strategic issues and everything that we do has to fit into either a financial planning and economic investment or a practice management area so there are areas that we stay away from we don't write about politics we don't write about things that don't have an effect on an advisor's everyday lives.
2: It's so funny. You mentioned, uh, you know, content that advisors can use to help clients reach their financial goals and and really focusing on longer term strategic issues. I was uh, on the website this morning and I saw an article on the 4% rule. That the four percent rule just became a lot easier, and the article went through, you know, using ladder tips to uh, help support a real four percent withdrawal rate in retirement. That's a pretty good example, right?
3: That is a great example. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, yeah, t- this is really a unique situation in the uh, in the bond market, particularly in the tips market. And just to back up, I mean, Bill Bengen, who is a legendary financial planner and researcher, in 1994. He popularized what became known as the 4% rule, sometimes referred to as the Bengen rule. Uh, Basically, it it says that uh, over a 30-year period, you can withdraw 4% of the principal annually from a portfolio where that 4% is adjusted for inflation each year and there have been hundreds of studies that have looked at historical data that have looked at monte carlo analysis that have tried to figure out can you do this with a stock and bond portfolio can you build a portfolio that won't run out of money over that thirty year period and and people have debated this question um, ad nauseum and today it turns out you can do that risk free by creating what's called a TIPS ladder. And I, I don't need to go into too much detail about that. I think most of the listeners who are advisors will understand what a TIPS ladder is. But because of the unique characteristics of the yield curve, and particularly the yield curve for what are known as real rates, you can now construct a 30 year ladder of TIPS bonds and have a risk free guaranteed 4%. It's actually greater than 4%. It's actually like about 4.3% right now uh, because real yields are so high.
2: Yeah, I just thought that was a perfect example. And of course, for any advisor who works with clients who are in retirement or approaching retirement, and you look at the yields that we've seen over the past decade plus, there hasn't been any yield. And so trying to generate that income in a portfolio has been a challenge. That's been one of the uh, silver linings of what we've seen uh, this year. But I, but again, I thought a good example. Hey, Bob, you mentioned being an entrepreneur, uh, you know, really being entrepreneurially, uh, entrepreneurial at heart, and is somebody myself who has started businesses and grown them and nurtured them. I, I'm curious why you thought Vetify was a good fit for this uh, baby you've nurtured over all these years, and, and why now? Why was the timing right? Well, uh, there really are two
3: primary reasons why uh, Vetify stood out for me as opposed to any other partner that that we could have chosen. And the first is the people. And I've grown I didn't know Tom Hendrickson before we uh started these negotiations, but I've grown to develop a great deal of respect for him. I've known Tom Leiden for a long time and he's someone who has an incredibly good reputation, someone of top notch integrity, someone who I've respected for a very long time. So the fact that the two of them were the people who I was working with, working out the terms of this deal meant a lot to me and the second was I saw that they had some very compelling technology that could help advisors and help asset managers and it it basically allows some data analytics to be applied to the marketing campaigns that asset managers run and really what it does is it enables asset managers to more appropriately and precisely target their audience and it means for advisors that they're being delivered content and delivered messaging on topics that are relevant to them
2: tom just a few minutes left here i want to come back to you uh anything that you would add to bob's comments before uh, I, I let you go i've got to tell you after hearing both of you speak today i'm very excited uh with with everything that uh that, that i'm hearing here but uh, any final comments
1: yeah, no, thanks, Nate. It, 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 you, you know, Bob touched on it throughout, uh, you know, the, the conversation you two were having. I think the one the one thing that really does ring very true, and as I, as I mentioned, the culture, Bob has been an entrepreneur his his whole life, and he's created an entrepreneurial attitude as it relates to how the business operates day to day, and that, that's very much in the same ilk as how we strive to uh, motivate and, and drive forward the Vetify capability set, and, and we want to empower people to do things that are that are innovative, and and there's some some things that are going to come out uh, very soon. That together we're going to really create some unique innovations within our space, um, both in the delivery of, of great content, tools, resources to first and foremost that that community that we have fostered, um, but also things that because of that relationship that we have can empower you know. Uh, more precision and efficiency within, within the lives and worlds of, of our asset management partners as well. So a lot more to come on that, but the thread of, of that just being um, sort of the lifeblood of both of our cultures, I think was something that certainly underpinned uh, a lot of the X's and O's, which those also made a, a ton of sense as well.
2: Well, gentlemen, congratulations on the deal. Like I said, really excited to see what comes next here. I I feel like this uh, certainly sounds like a huge win for Advisors. So congratulations, and thank you for joining me this week.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it.
2: That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify, and Bob Hoopsher, founder and CEO of Advisor Perspectives.
0: These days, we're all investors, trying to be smart with our money despite our worst impulses. But at iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor.
4: One that's just waiting to be let out.
5: Explore iShares ETFs and insights and let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com for more information.
2: joined by Kelsey Mowray, president of Motley Fool Asset Management, who currently offers six ETFs, over $1 billion in assets. That includes two mutual funds they converted to ETFs at the end of last year. And Kelsey is now on the line with me from Virginia. Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. It's great to be here. Okay, so my sense is many people are pretty familiar with the Motley Fool brand, uh, just in terms of the overall online presence at fool.com and the content side of things. But I'm not sure everyone is aware that Motley Fool has an asset management arm. And so I'd love to start there. uh, Perhaps tell us a little bit about the history of the asset management business and then uh, how, if at all, that business interfaces with the Motley Fool brand and sort of the online presence that I think most people know?
5: Sure. Uh, So as you mentioned, our sister company, the Motley Fool, was founded in the early 90s as a traditional print newsletter um, with the aim to speak the, the truth about money and investing and to make financial advice accessible to people of all backgrounds, experience levels. Almost thirty years later they provide free free and premium investment guidance to millions of people around the world. So where do we fall into that picture? So Motley Fool Asset Management was really born out of the request from followers of our sister company. They were interested in the stock selecting process and, and philosophy, but didn't have the time to, to do it ourselves. In twenty in two thousand eight, Motley Fool Asset Management launched uh, within the two mutual funds you mentioned, which are, of course, now ETFs today. Um, Our investment team had predominantly come from our sister company. So you'll see a framework in our four pillars of quality investing process that nods to their start. But our team's research and company selection for our active portfolios all happen independently from our, our sister company.
2: Okay, so your first ETF launched in early 2018. That was the Motley Fool 100 ETF, ticker TMFC. Uh, This is an index-based ETF. That was followed by the actively managed Motley Fool Small Cap Growth ETF, ticker symbol TMFS, also launched in uh, 2018. And then if we fast forward to December of last year, uh, as we noted, you did convert those two active mutual funds to ETFs. And then also launched two index-based ETFs. So as I mentioned, now six <laughs> ETFs <laughs> overall. Yeah, more than a billion dollars in assets. And I do want to talk specifically about those conversions. Uh, but first, just give us a little bit of your uh, ETF history here. Like like why Motley Fool Asset Management first got involved in ETFs, and then perhaps offer a little bit of color around those first two products that uh, debuted in 2018. Yeah.
5: Uh, so if we, if we look back, we really ran our mutual funds like ETFs. Uh, no 12v1 or load fees, we published all of our holdings on our website, not daily, but but monthly. So we're really leaning towards the transparency of ETFs already. Uh, ETFs weren't as prominent when we got started back in 2008, but by 2018, uh, they were. So when the product ideas started swirling around, it really only made sense to launch them as ETFs, given their retail-friendly nature and accessibility. So, like you mentioned, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to, in 2018, early 2018, we launched uh, TMFC, the Motley Fool 100 Index ETF, which aims to be the convenient vehicle designed to harness the power of the Motley Fool's intellectual property. Uh, TMFC tracks the index, which is comprised of the top 100 large-cap domestic companies within the recommendation universe of our sister company, The Motley Fool. We believe this index offers a unique alternative to your common large cap index fund. We've coined the term of active-ish uh, or passive-ish because although it's a passive product, it's comprised of active uh, stock recommendations that are coming through um, by our index provider.
2: Okay, so again, you did have those two ETFs in 2018, and then towards the end of last year, you converted the two mutual funds. What can you tell us about that, just in terms of the decision-making around doing the conversions and uh, what the history was with, with those two funds?
5: Absolutely. In 2018 is around the time, of course, we were launching our first ETF. We, we fell in love, so we started exploring what it would look like to um, go through with a conversion and if it was even possible. So after launching the ETF and and it was clear to us that it was our preferred vehicle with the tax efficiency, unitary fee, um, the accessibility both from free of purchase minimums and transparency, um, we started doing research around the conversion and we found we didn't want to uh, reinvent the wheel Uh, So early 2021, when we saw that first conversion go through, we knew we wanted to be next. Uh, So we started the process, and by December of last year, we had our share class consolidation, and then the conversion into ETF went through, like you mentioned.
2: And then tell us a little bit more about the ETFs themselves. So there's the Motley Fool Mid-Cap Growth ETF, ticker TMFM, and the Motley Fool Global Opportunities ETF, TMFG. Give us a quick snapshot.
5: Sure. So uh, Motley Fool Global Opportunities ETF is concentrated, actively managed portfolio of 40 to 50 high-conviction global companies. By actively targeting sustainable growth anywhere in the world, we believe TMFG can take advantage of the power of the geographic diversification while pursuing the high quality businesses with uh, strong market positions. TMFM um, is our mid-cap growth ETF. It's also actively managed and comprised of highly selective portfolio of approximately 30 stocks uh, that provides investors with access to the potential growth of innovative U.S. uh, mid-cap companies.
2: You know, it's interesting. So as you went through those, I I heard high conviction. You mentioned the term highly selective. As I was looking at the Motley Fool asset management website, something that was pretty clear to me was that there's a a strong belief in the importance of active share, that it's important for active funds to have a higher active share compared to their benchmarks. Do you want to expand on that?
5: Sure. So active share measures the percentage of stocks in a portfolio that deviates from the benchmark index. It's a range from zero to 100. Uh, zero indicates the portfolio holdings mirror the benchmark exactly, um, which is completely fine as long as you reflect that in your expense ratio. Portfolios with an active share of 100 have no holdings in common with their benchmark. So the higher the active share in an ETF, the more unique stock that contains Our actively managed ETFs typically have an active share of over 90, and we take a lot of pride in that. We feel it's an indicator of how willing a portfolio management team is to be different, and we believe that our high active share is a necessary ingredient to outperforming a strategy benchmark index over time.
2: No, that certainly stood out to me uh, when, when, again, reviewing the website and the investment materials. Uh, Kelsey, just a few minutes left. I noted those other two index ETFs that uh, debuted last December, that's the Motley Fool Next Index ETF, ticker TMFX, and then the Motley Fool Capital Efficiency 100 Index ETF, ticker TMFE. Uh, just briefly here, what can you tell us about those?
5: Absolutely. Our two newest products we launched at the the tail end of 2021 Uh, The Motley Fool Next and the Motley Fool Capital Efficiency 100 Index ETF are both under the same passive-ish category uh, as we've coined for the Fool 100. The indexes that they track are both hosted by our sister company, the Motley Fool, and derived from the same active recommendation universe. The key differences are that the Motley Fool Next is comprised of mid- and small-cap companies where the Fool 100 is pulling the large and mega-caps. And capital efficiency 100 is more of our smart data tilt. Uh, Again, it's pulling from the same active recommendation universe, but it has an added filter of a capital efficiency score, which comprises of an equal weighted measure of a company's growth, profitability, and stability.
2: Well, Kelsey, a a very nice uh, quick tour of the Motley Fool Asset Management (laughs) ETF lineup. A pleasure connecting this week. I think a a unique story with the Motley Fool Asset Management business and the ETF. So very interested to uh, track these moving forward. Thank you for joining me.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on.
2: That was Kelsey Malray, president of Motley Fool Asset Management. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Will Ryan, founder and CEO of Granite shares, who back in August they launched four single stock ETFs. So these are a suite of short and leveraged single stock ETFs covering Tesla, Apple, and Coinbase and these will be the focus of our conversation this week though I should note Granite shares currently offers five other ETFs, including the Granite shares Gold Trust, ticker Bar, BAR. So nine ETFs in all, about $1.3 billion in assets. And Will is now on the line with me from New York. Will, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast.
4: Nate, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me back on the podcast.
2: Okay, so I think the launch of single stock ETFs here in the U.S. is probably one of the biggest ETF stories this year, right? It's received a lot of attention, Uh, not all good, by the way, which I'm sure we'll get into, But what's interesting is these products have actually been around for a while in Europe. And I know GraniteShares first launched these in the U.K. back in uh, 2019. So to start, can you give us some history here just in terms of GraniteShares' involvement in this space, uh, beginning in Europe, and then the decision to enter the U.S. market? Sure.
4: So I think it goes back to really leveraged ETFs just more broadly. And as we know, you know, leveraged ETFs are not a new thing. They've been around for you know, well over a decade now. And, you know, they evolved as, you know, an easy way for investors to get exposure to first of all, uh, leveraged or short broad indices on equities or bonds. And then that sort of evolved into adding commodities into the mix and levered ETFs on commodities, both uh, commodity indices and individual commodities such as oil and natural gas, et cetera, have been very popular. And the, I guess the, the U.S. part of this story is that we weren't able to launch uh, levered ETFs at all uh, when we started GraniteShares. And there was a couple of reasons for that. But the main one was that there were only two companies allowed to launch uh, leveraged ETFs in the U.S. So a company like GraniteShares was not able to do that. So we actually started this business in Europe where there was no Uh, impediment for us to do that. And so that's the main reason why we got started in Europe providing these products. Then obviously, subsequently over time, uh, there was an SEC rule change here in the United States that allowed any issuer to launch leveraged products, but then also paved the way for the launch of levered ETFs now on single stocks or individual companies as opposed to what we'd had before.
2: That rule change you mentioned, was that the main catalyst? Because from my perspective, I feel like European regulators overall have historically been uh, more open minded to ETF innovation than the SEC. And so because of that, I think, as you're alluding to, it it, it took longer for the first single stock ETFs to roll out in the U.S., at least in my mind, that was part of the issue. Um, But was the ETF rule the primary catalyst to get these through the SEC or was there more to it than that?
4: No, there's there's not really more to it. Um, and like I said, Nate, it was as simple as when we launched Granite Shares, we couldn't launch a levered ETF of any sort mm-hmm. in the United States. It was as simple as that. Um, that opportunity didn't exist for us and for any other issuer um, who had aspirations in that space. So, you know, a lot of people ask us, you know, goodness me, if you if you've pioneered this space in terms of leveraged single stocks is a great idea. You know, why start in Europe versus just launching them here in the U.S.? And, you know, we have to always explain that it wasn't possible for us to do that here um, five years ago. And so we started in Europe because it was possible. Um, and, you know, we built a good a good franchise there uh, in the space. And then subsequently, rules have changed, markets have evolved and we're able to offer that here now.
2: We'll move on from the regulatory side of the equation. But one other note, obviously, the leverage factors on these ETFs here in the US are uh, smaller, so 1.25 times or 1.5 times, 1.75 times, not the two or three, or I've seen even higher leverage factors over in Europe. I'm assuming that was something the SEC requested?
4: Yeah, it's, um, it's a kind of collision between two different rules. So there was the ETF rule that we're talking about that allowed us to launch leveraged ETFs. And in that rule, any issuer can launch uh, levered ETFs, but the maximum leverage factor, which is the amount of leverage uh, in a given ETF, is set at two times. So you can't do anything lo- anything more than two times. But there was actually a new rule that came into play actually in August of this year called the derivative rule, and it's really a collision between these two rules. So I wouldn't necessarily say um, it's, it's the SEC requesting it. It was more that in the derivative rule um, – there's specific calculations around the volatility um, and the volatility of the underlying stock dictates ultimately what leverage factor you can have. And ultimately, that's why um, you've seen these leverage factors that actually come in for the most part less than two times. It, it's a very sort of in the weeds type conversation, but it's basically two different rules colliding together that has enabled or, or has allowed these leverage factors to play.
2: It's obviously still very early here in the US with single stock ETFs, but as I noted, these have been around for a while in Europe. I'm just curious, what's the overall reception to these products been like over in Europe?
4: In Europe, it's been really good, but obviously I'll, I'll obviously preface that um, with what's happened this year. And, and I say that because um, you know the, these products really took off like a rocket. Um, in Europe and in Europe, we're able to launch three times long, three times short. Typically, that's, that's the sort of, um, you know, offering that we have. And so from the end of 2019, um, obviously we had the, the, the collapse during COVID, but then we had the kind of roaring back conditions in the market that really, um, endured until the end of last year. And so it was a really, really good environment for these products. And I say that because. The market, whether we like it or not, is um, much more long than it is short. In other words, investors seem to favor the the three times long versus the three times short. And so this year has clearly been you know, a really difficult year um, for the market just more broadly, but for a lot of these individual companies that were really popular with investors and particularly some of the technology names. But we haven't seen, or, or I guess there haven't been enough um sort of contrasting investments on the short side to kind of offset the declines on the long side. Um, so the market's still overwhelmingly long in that respect. Um, but yeah, the reception is very good. There's a lot of trading volume in them. And the case for an investor that you know just frankly wants that volatility, that more that's a shorter term uh investment rather than a longer term buy and hold.
2: Okay, so your initial suite of products here in the US, let me go through these. There's the Granite Shares 1.25 times long Tesla daily ETF, ticker TSL. There's a one-time short Tesla daily ETF, ticker TSLI, a 1.75 times long Apple daily ETF, ticker AAPB, and then a 1.5 times long uh, Coinbase daily ETF, ticker CONL. Why start with uh, those particular underlying companies?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is because that was our experience or that's been in our experience in Europe. So the most popular products that we have on the European platform are the three times long three times short Tesla. And so that company, in particular, um, generates a large amount of interest, both on the long side and the short side. Um, So it's kind of unique uh, in that respect. So that's the most popular product we have. So we wanted to, to offer that here in the US. Apple, um, Apple's just a stock that practically everybody owns, even if you almost don't think you own it, you know, by virtue of owning the S&P 500 or something, you do own it. Um, and again, that's a popular popular stock for us um, in Europe. And Coinbase was, was a slightly different one, although we do have that in Europe. Um, that was sort of really two parts to that. One was, Uh, offering that exposure here, which was unique um, in the U.S., but also because of all the press um, largely generated around um, the Bitcoin ETF uh, and the Bitcoin ETF story and ultimately the regulator still to this day not approving um, a Bitcoin ETF. So Coinbase being a kind of proxy for crypto itself, um, we thought that could be an interesting idea for the U.S. market.
2: I feel like you are trying to bait me into talking uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. I'm not going to take it, Will. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, not today, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so um, let's get into the weeds just a little bit here. Uh, Explain how you're actually getting exposure. And let's maybe take the 1.75 times long Apple ETF. What exactly does this hold?
4: So it holds a swap contract, which is a derivative Um, that is issued by an investment bank typically. Um, although it could be, could be a broker dealer, but it's typically just a derivative contract that provides the leverage. And then obviously behind that, you have, uh, cash collateral. Um, so that, that's really the way that all these products work. It's very similar. Um, albeit the mechanics are slightly different because the regulatory environment is different, but it's, um, very similar to how all these products work, whether they're in the Europe or in the U.S.
2: Okay, and can you explain the daily reset here? And we don't have to get into all the math. Yeah. I don't think that really translates well in the podcast format. But maybe just explain why these do reset daily and the potential implications if someone holds these ETFs for longer periods of time.
4: Sure. So the, first of all, why is there a daily reset? So the whole the whole idea, the investment objective, if you will, is these are designed, you know, think of it like constant leverage, to give you constant leverage. And they give you exposure to whatever that factor is. So take the Apple, that's 1.75 times Apple on a daily basis. So in order to give the investor exactly 1.75 times, you reset, and another word for reset is rebalance that portfolio at the end of the day, so that the start of the second trading day, you will have 1.75 times leverage. Now, people might intuitively think that it would work the same way if you didn't have that. But here's what happens if you had, say, a monthly reset, that only on day one would you have 1.75 times leverage because the market moves up and down. And so on day two, or if you're buying the product on day 10, for example, you wouldn't know what kind of leverage you were getting. And it could be more or less um, Than the stated objective, so that that's first and foremost the most important reason why there's daily leverage um, in the first place is that it keeps the leverage factor consistent or constant. That way, you always get the stated amount of leverage. Um, and and like I said, the rebalancing happens at the end of at uh, the end of the day, um, and that means that you're investing the profits uh, from that day, or obviously if you have losses. Uh, you rebalancing that into the beginning of the next day, and then you start, your starting position for day two and or day three, four, et cetera, is the 1.75 times the closing NAV, you know, from the previous day. So that includes, obviously, the the profits from that previous day.
2: And so what are the implications of that? If somebody holds us for a longer period of time, they buy on day one, let's say they hold it for 10 days or 20 days or 30 days, what happens?
4: Yeah. So what what it gives you is we call it compounding effect. And what that means is that there's typically a deviation from the cumulative 1.75 times the underlying NAV over time. So in other words, if you held it for 10 days or 20 days or 30 days, your end position will be almost certainly more or less than the stated leverage factor from the beginning So 1.5 times wherever you you bought it in the first place. And and the reason for that is because of this reinvestment of profit. So to try and put it a very simple way, that uh, in a trending environment where the NAV is increasing on a daily basis, then the leverage effect is compounding on a daily basis. So you'll most likely outperform the cumulative uh, return or cumulative leverage the underlying position if it's consequently trending in the opposite direction you'll underperform on, on the on the downside and really what the the environment i think confuses people most and the thing that is um the, the worst environment if you will for the product is where you have a choppy market in other words the market's going up 1% one day, down 1% the next day, up 1% the next day, down, or the stock, whatever it may be. And in that case, you get um, erosion of the NAB because of the compounding. You, you, you have to look at the, the, kind of the math behind it. Um, but that's really the environment, I think, that kind of confuses people most.
2: No, I completely agree. I mean, I think really... The, the compounding effects become more pronounced the longer the holding period. And then in, in particular, the greater the volatility. But if you have those two things combined, that's where you're gonna see uh, some uh, substantial differences from uh, what you may expect. W- well, I think because of all of this, uh, I-, I mentioned this earlier, there has been some negative press on single stock ETFs. And you know I think that's primarily due to the fact that some people are concerned retail investors may not understand the things that, w- that we just walked through. And perhaps yeah. I could get burned by these products. There's just too much octane here. Who do you think the audience is for these products? And I guess even more importantly, what are some specific use cases?
4: Well, you know, let, let's start with the audience. I think the audience is the same audience that you know trades in levered ETFs just more broadly and has been for the last ten plus years. And so, you know, whether you call them sophisticated investors, and the definition of that could be an individual or it could be anybody from a a financial advisor to a small hedge fund. But it's somebody who trades actively, um, but who has clearly a lot of experience um, in the market. I think some of the, the practical use cases, let's start with the most obvious one, the vast majority of investors cannot go short or have no ability to profit from declining stock prices or declining markets. And so, for example, you know, outside of the big macro themes of this year, like long the dollar, long commodities, the best thing you could have probably done was just to short the market. But the vast majority of investors can't do that. So there's a very obvious practical application. I think our test I checked yesterday, for example, TSli, you know, is up 32% um, since we we launched the product, you know, back in August. Um, and so again, that's not leveraged. That's actually an unleveraged, It's an inverse. Product, um, but again, it's, it's an obvious sort of practical application that investors, you know, have or typically don't have in their toolkit, which is the ability to to go short. In terms of leverage, you have obviously um, the short-term speculative, you know, effect whereby people want to profit from a short-term move. It could be an earnings announcement. Right now, obviously, we're we're heading into the next. Earnings season, people might have a particular view, positive view on a company, um, therefore want to to get some leverage. Using leverage means you don't have to commit the the same amount of capital as if you were in an unleveraged position. Um, And so using less money to achieve the same kind of notional exposure um, by doing it on a leverage basis. Um, But we see a lot of of practical applications um, with these products. And obviously, like ETFs more broadly, you know, as we always used to joke that there's sort of a thousand different ways to use ETFs. but We probably thought of only a hundred of them.
1: <laughs> um,
4: and so, you know, it's just one of those things that um, whether you're on the short or the long side, depending on your own personal situation and your investment or you know, otherwise uh, investing goals, um, people will use them for different different purposes.
2: Will, you know, I always like playing a, a little bit of devil's advocate on this podcast. And you mentioned the vast majority of investors not being able to go short. And as I think about this, if retail investors want to trade on margin to lever up, or they want to short a stock, they have to get brokerage approval, right? But with these ETFs, anyone can access them. We always say, you know, ETFs have democratized investing. Do you think there should be some sort of approval process for these ETFs? Like, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, FINRA proposal uh, earlier this year on more complex products, which you know, they want investors to take a test and those sort of things. I don't think that's the right answer. But I guess my question for you is, do you think there should be any sort of hurdle that investors have to jump over to use these single stock ETFs? I'm I'm glad
4: you brought this up, because there's a lot of misinformation about this point. I think that um, just because it's an ETF, I think that there's a huge amount of misinformation around the fact that anybody can buy an ETF. That's not true. Um, Obviously, ETFs, just like any financial product, um, when they're offered by a broker, it's up to the broker as to the suitability around that product for their customers and what, you know, what guardrails they put around it or not. I would say that the vast majority of brokers that I know, um, you typically can't buy one of these products just, and again, it's a myth to say that, you know, just sort of Joe Retail uh, investor can just go on to a Schwab account or an Interactive investor's account and just start trading these products. Typically, you have to be flagged for you know an active trader account. You have to have you know certain amount of experience. Um, there's more than there's more than just you know nothing, and that's certainly the case in Europe, where you have a suitability regime in most markets, and indeed with some brokers they don't offer these products just altogether. Um, because they don't offer products that have leverage, um, and and again, that's no different to. I mean, even Nate. I mean, a lot of my commodity products, as you know, are, are sort of plain vanilla in the in the probably professional investor sense. Um, but there's still some broker dealers that don't offer, you know, commodity futures-based ETFs because they the underlying is futures, um, and so it, it's definitely. Um, I guess my main point is that it's not just something that anybody can buy. There's a lot of uh, that. That's a bit of a
3: myth.
2: Just a couple of minutes left here. If we put that access, uh, you know, debate aside, just on the note of trading on margin or shorting stocks in a brokerage account. I'm curious, how do the cost of that compare with these ETFs? Just overall, I know there's differences in fees yeah. depending upon the brokerage, but just high level, you know, what, what's the cost differential look like?
4: High level, mate is it's they're really inexpensive compared to traditional margin. And you know, if you look at the main brokers in the country, and again, all this public knowledge, you can just Google it. But if you look at what Fidelity charges for margin or Schwab, you know, they're actually both identical. But for, for any trades of between zero and just under $25,000, it's 11.325% um, margin rate. And that declines for the amount of money you invest, but even... A million dollars or more, you're still paying seven percent margin um at Fidelity, which is a huge number. But it's not it's not just the cost of the margin. It's the hoops you have to jump through to get the margin account in place, and you know they'll acquire investment minimums, etc. There, there are all sorts of terms and conditions. But the other thing that I, I think I want to point out that doesn't get said a lot about these products is the the lack of margin needed for an ETF. So in my mind, one of the main reasons why people lose money with leverage is because in traditional margin accounts, you're subject to the broker's margin rules. And a lot of people lose money because they get stopped out uh, and when they get a margin call. Whereas with these ETFs, you don't get margin calls. Now that's obviously one of the benefits and it goes back to the compounding, goes back to the daily rebalancing. And why that happens Um, But also the maximum amount you can lose is your investment or your amount invested, which obviously no one wants to lose a maximum. But with traditional leverage, again, in one of these accounts, potentially your losses can be unlimited um, if it goes you. So there's definitely benefits to these products. When you're talking about leverage to leverage, what are the like ways you can do that, that that I think are beneficial or worth pointing out?
2: Will, just about a minute left here uh, before I let you go. Obviously, it's still very early with these products in the U.S. And I think we'll see what the investor demand looks like longer term. But assuming the demand is there, do you envision rolling out additional single stock ETFs here in the U.S.? No,
4: no, absolutely. I mean, we're we're working on more products. Um, We actually when we did our application, uh, there was 20 products in that application of which we only we've only launched four so far. I mean, as you as you can probably understand, the market environment is difficult um, for any product. Um, and I think a, it's probably a separate podcast as to as to what investors are doing or not doing in this current environment. But clearly, the environment is quite challenging. Um, but I think, again, based on what we've seen in Europe, um, there's no lack of interest for these types of products, and it really just you know evolved the, the ETF offering more broadly.
2: Well, Will, fantastic stuff as always. Uh, We we, we always say the ETF industry never stops innovating, right? Which means education never stops. And I (laughs) thought you did an excellent job with that this week. Thank you for joining me.
4: Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: That was Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares sustainable ETFs, you can visit ishares.com sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Alexandra Wilson Elizandro, who is head of multi-asset funds and models portfolio management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. So we will talk ETF model portfolios. And then Nick Elward, head of institutional product and ETFs at Natixis Investment Managers, will discuss their ETF lineup. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Hey folks, Dave Noddick from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead, and what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's gonna be an experience you're not gonna forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, And most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We wanna hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code
1: PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us, thanks.